This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And my passion is to rid this great nation of America of soccer. I'm never going to rest, never going to tire of trying to show the rest of my fellow citizens that this is a waste of our time, energy, and resources. Until there is no soccer being played in this country. Until I can drive past a local park on a weekend morning and not see a single person playing soccer. I have a dream. I will not rest. Until I see nothing but baseball. I just win again, then win again, like Wimbledon, I serve. Yeah, that's him again, the sound the engine in is like a bird. You see fireworks and Corvette tire skirt, the boulevard. I know how you work, I know just who you are. Hey, buddy, welcome back. Um, this is Let's Fix Football. We're back. We, uh, it's your host, Gabe Lesser. I'm joined by Evan Mateer. Evan, we're back. Um, we're doing this show. Again, we're rebooting, I guess, MCU style. I would, I would say this is our... Um, Captain Marvel, if you will, um, of a yeah, reboot. It, I don't know. Sorry, it's it's our huge retcon. We have actually always been a once once a month show. That's um, true. That is that is what it was from the start. And if you uh, if you don't believe that, then yeah, you're the crazy one. Yeah, it's not us that's crazy. It's you're you're the crazy one for even remembering that this show existed in anything other than its current form, um, and that it had anything other than uh, dumb shit to say all the time. So I'm very excited for the current forum, though. I mean, it. So I mean, just so everyone knows, it, you know, we're very excited to be back. It was kind of a challenge ever since I moved to the West Coast to to keep up with the the weekly scheduling, just because time zones and, and life. But you know, I think that this format's gonna gonna you know suit you our changed strengths. Jo- you changed jobs too, so you had yeah. less less time, which is always exciting. It's always good to get a job that that takes up all all of your energy, and then when you don't aren't doing it it makes you so tired that you feel like the only thing you really want to do is lie around and watch tv um yeah i mean that's the dream that's the american dream they tell us that the american dream is dead and i say that they're lying i say you lie sir i call you out for your lies the american dream is working 80 hours a week uh doing things that that are are I'll just leave it there. And screaming at your dog for eating your Bose headphones. Oh my god! Yeah, or for barking during your podcast, or um, it's also doing all those things while watching your sports team lose, and um, are just being totally normal about it and not having a total meltdown um, while you're watching that. And it's so I'll tell you. I'll tell you a quick quick story. So, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but you know, when I was a young lad. Uh, watching primarily the Baltimore Ravens. I was really mostly an American football fan when I was a kid. I watched a little bit of baseball, a little bit of college basketball, but really it was about the Ravens. And I would just get like 
just so furious. I had such an unhealthy relationship to the Ravens. And the part of the problem is like the first season I really watched was the Super Bowl season. So I was very conditioned for like winning. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it didn't go that way. And I would just, I would throw, I was, you know, what? I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I'd throw these temper tantrums. I'd throw <laughs> shit, hit things. And it was like so bad that my mom would have to threaten to like not let me watch the games because it upset me so much. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, happily, I, I could still, uh, like everyone else, get frustrated about sports now as an adult. Uh, but it turns out that not everybody has grown out of the temper tantrum throw shit phase. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and, I mean, I still haven't really grown out of it. That's why when my sports teams are in very important matches, I try not to invite people over. But, you know, what I don't do is throw my temper tantrums in places where I know people are going to be videotaping me. <laughs> or any more destroy expensive equipment that I use to, you know, do my job or watch the sports. So that's why we specifically today wanted to shout out to one particular king, um, PSG fan who destroyed his large flat screen TV watching his team lose to Manchester United. <laughs> and and I, I understand the impulse. I get it. I get it. I, it, it pr- maybe it felt good in the moment, but... But it can't have felt good after. As someone who has personally destroyed stuff, like not like a TV, thank God. I've throw, I've chucked shit, shit at my TV. It's it's funny that we found each other. We're spiritual like brothers, Evan. Because when I was in high school and I was doing the same stuff, and you could ask any of my high school friends, there's this particularly famous moment of be whipping like one of those uh, plastic, not really full bottles of I think it was like ketchup or something because we were all like having burgers <laughs> at the TV. When oh, I was amazing. in my house, like, and everyone just kind of being silent because, um, you know, something happened in the game we were watching. I'm not sure exactly. It was I just like losing it and spent my whole adult life either telling myself, "How you you have to learn how to calm down, or you can't watch sports anymore." Well, I mean, it really does like make people around you uncomfortable. Like, it's not it's not pleasant to be around somebody who's like throwing a temper tantrum over sports. No, it's, it's not it's not pleasant <laughs> around to be around someone who's throwing a temper tantrum at all. Generally, exactly. like it's not fun to be around someone who's having a psychotic meltdown. <laughs> I mean, I remember I remember Gabe. I I might have told this story on the show before, but I. I came over to watch the Champions League final with you and oh it would have been 2014, I think, the summer of 2014. Oh my God. <laughs> and I left at halftime. Yeah, that was smart of you. Because I just – I didn't care enough to deal with the amount of stress yeah. that was going on in this room full of other Madrid fans. Yeah, and Josh, uh, Josh was there Josh too. Josh was there, yeah. I was just – I was broken. <laughs> that game <laughs> broke me in such an incredible way. Uh, and the it is an experience that I will never forget because of how deeply psychotic it made me feel. Like afterwards, looking back on the experience, I'm like, like I'm not a serial murderer, but like I think there is some little thing in there that's like I, this not- dude could snap. Like that was fucked up. Like I, I like sat and like – cradled my health on the ground i was like so stressed out by this match and like i don't know josh was there and uh he actually also was having a pretty normal experience um i remember for a little while you guys were really directing your angst at the english language uh you switched to the spanish language broadcast <laughs> so only, embarrassing. only momentarily sated you <laughs> 
<laughs> well, but you know, I mean, what we didn't do is we didn't run onto the pitch in the middle of a game and punch a player in the face. Which, Christ, you did oh, yeah, not. We did not do that. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done that, but again, this is just a uh, really right back to form for us. Just shout out to this guy who did that. Jack Grealish got punched in the face by some random uh, angry man in what can only be described as like an 1890s gangst- like English gangster cockney hat. Uh, he's right out of Peaky Blinders, like 100%, like which also takes place in Birmingham. So I guess that just makes sense. It does but, make sense. But he was but, in the yes. middle of a game. The pitch invader just rushed up from behind him and then punched him in the face like it's like the 1970s NBA. And they're just having a brawl on the on the pitch. It's incredible. I've, ne- I've honestly, in all of my 30 years of watching sports, I've never seen anything like that before. I mean... There's the tennis player who got stabbed at courtside. That was pretty fucking. I guess crazy. you're right. We don't watch Brazilian um, and other South American competition yeah. stuff because I bet but, that happens I mean, more. Here, here's my problem with the Grealish thing. Um, not a problem with the substance. A problem with my personal reaction to it. <laughs> On the one hand, I know intellectually, I understand that it's very it's unacceptable. Players can get hurt. This Jack Grealish is an innocent guy. He got punched in the face, and that's not cool. The other for the problem is that the other side of me watches the video and can't stop because it's freaking hilarious. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's too very funny. funny. It's very funny to watch this guy get clocked, and I feel bad because it was a bad thing, and it shouldn't happen. And I'm, I'm I guess I'm helping perpetuate it by enjoying it. But goddamn it, oh, I just can't. I just funny. can't stop. And you know what? I it's refuse. Real. I refuse to apologize for thinking this is funny. I just. I. I. I'm not gonna. You know. Enjoyment shame myself from watching this video. Don't run onto the pitch and punch people. That's dumb and bad, and you shouldn't do it. But when it, the fact that someone did it does not does not like the, the, that fact does not make the this video of this exact incident where Jack Grealish gets hit punched in the face by the guy from Peaky Blinders to be any less <laughs> funny when I watch it like it's just too good and as you noted earlier when we talked about this the dude gets up from the ground after he gets let's be clear sucker punched by someone who rushed from behind to punch him in the face and uh, gets up plays the rest of the game, and then scores the winner, which is incredibly badass. That is is fucking awesome. And it was a cool winner, too. It was, like, from outside the box, like, cutting across the entire box into the into the bottom quarter. It was a very, was a cool very shot. cool shot. That's really um, cool. And, you know, it's also a shout-out because that is extremely English. I think the only time, like, I would not expect, and I don't know what this says about me, but I would not expect someone playing in, in Spain to be able to get punched in the face, then get back up and score. Like, I, I, themselves, like compose right? themselves enough to do that. But like, I just feel like that's a really like, you know, and maybe I'm just perpetuating the same, like, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, like the same, like, well, this is what the, 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 you know, the good English lads, right? Like the, the good English boys. They're all grit, blood grit and grit. And blood. Like, but you know what? Sometimes they are. And that's exactly what the hell that was. That was a, that was amazing. I mean, Ron Artest, yeah got into the stands and fought some fans and then he got ejected. So that, God, I guess I it's not really for, the same thing, but <laughs> I always forget about the, the, the battle at the palace. Malice is a palace, man. One what of the classics. an amazing event. 
I have such a vivid memory of that happening, actually, like when it happened. It was insane. I was extremely team Ron Artest, though. That guy's got a beer thrown at him. Like, he lost his mind, obviously, and, like, he shouldn't have done it. But, like, don't throw a beer at the player. That's such the worst possible thing you could do. And, like, in the NBA, you're right by them. So, like, what what do you expect when you hurl your beer at someone? That's a move that if you're in a bar, you get into a fight. I mean, that's the, it's almost announcing that you want to fight, right? Like when you spill a beer on somebody, you are attempting to provoke them into a fight. That's yeah. the only reason that you do it. Yeah. I mean, we have like, a, a friend who does, who, who used to get really drunk and smash his head into people. And like, that's the same thing. You do that. Hey, you're trying yeah, to get into a fight with someone. I, it, it, all of this kind of raises the broad, like th- clearly there are a lot of people who are struggling with watching sports. <laughs> Maybe it, they it, shouldn't it, watch sports. Having an extremely negative impact. If you are gr- running onto the pitch to, because you hate Jack Grealish that much, like what are you doing at the game? Yeah, what, what's going on, man? That bad, why are you there? What What are you getting out of this out of this equation? You have paid the money to <laughs> to show up at the game and become so incensed that you will commit a crime. It is. It actually is really insane. It's and. It's funny because for, to some extent I was going to answer the question of why do we care and why do we watch sports because we're just dr- making us – driving us all insane with, well, actually watching this, you know, fucking uh, Sherlock Holmes punch Jack Grealish is why we watch uh, sports. But it's – you know, it's why we watch sports. But for the guy who actually rushed onto the field to attack a player, like that dude shouldn't be watching sports. Sports – cannot fill the void in your soul and if you try to make it fill that like dark deep spot in your soul you're just gonna end up ruthlessly angry and rushing onto the field to fight someone who you've never met and has never done anything wrong to you that's yeah i mean yeah if it's that if you make it that it's central to like your character right and to your happiness like here's the thing your sports team's gonna lose and they're gonna lose fairly frequently right you know depending on what the standards of the team you're watching are they might move lose a lot or they might only not win all the time but you're still going to be unhappy a lot of the time in fact Uh, just look at how unhappy so many madrid fans are about this one bad season in the like last decade exactly and they're ready to throw themselves in front of a bus exactly because you know because this one season's gone badly and 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 you know it's just it's it's kind of this it, it ties in almost with the conversations we had with Ohm a few months ago about how an unhealthy relationship with sports leads people to you know make all kinds of excuses for Cristiano Ronaldo or other right. other star players because like it's all they have like they can't let go to it nothing bad can happen because their happiness is too bound up in their sports team being good and their sports heroes being good um, and it's just, it's just, it's just all bad. And it's a, it's a thing that I think that like every time I let like a Spurs loss ruin my Saturday, um, I right. think about like, what am I doing here? Right. This is supposed to be fun, right? Like this at, at base, right? Sports. I mean, we talked, we've talked about this before, but at base sports is about entertainment. And when it's not fun and it's not entertaining, then you like, I think we should ask the question, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this then? If it's not fun, if it's not entertaining. And that's one of the things that like, I post occasionally to remind people like, 
Yo, like, if you are not happy and this is not making you happy, you cannot do this. Like, that is actually an an option for you. This, you know, I know people like to say this is my, like, religion, this is whatever. But, like, you, you know, it's also not any of those things. And it doesn't need to be. And, like, you can make an identity for yourself outside of your sports team that you do. And you like, should. And get you should have an identity for yourself. You should have an identity for yourself outside your sports team. Like if every social media account you have is Madrid lover one six, six, seven, you know, and you have no other hobbies and no other interests. And the only thing that brings you joy in life is Madrid doing well, right? You're probably doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And you're going to, you're, there's going to be a moment when Madrid doesn't do well. And the next thing that you're going to turn to is going to be, you know, it's going to be a very dark time in your life. Like I can only say that from experience with the people who have, you know, sent a bunch of hate mail and shit to, to managing Madrid and all of our staff because, um, because the the team isn't doing well. It's like, you need to find something else to do with your life and, and accept that. That's fine. And you can enjoy this, the dumb things in sport like we do, like the fact that Kepa refused to be substituted and didn't come out somehow. And why, what exactly the rules are for what happens when a manager tells a player to be subbed off and then the player literally refuses. And I, the fact that I don't know what, I don't know if I've ever seen like that happen before. This, this was extremely funny. So we had, we had Kepa, the, the goalkeeper for, for Chelsea in the, it was in the league cup finals, which, you know, was very important to about six people. Um, and, and so what it was, it was towards the end of the game and there had been some question earlier about when, whether Kepa was hurt a little bit or not. But I think the big thing is that his backup, uh, had previously played for city and they wanted, I think that really the manager wanted him in for the PKs that were going to come Yes, that's right. because he practiced PKs against them every day in practice for whatever number of years. And so they call Kepa's number, they throw it up. They, I, I don't know if they ever actually throw it on the board. He's going to be subbed off. Uh, and he just starts waving his finger in the air. No, 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 no. No, I no. won't. I won't be subbed, not off. Going to be subbed off. Which is amazing. I just, I don't and know. Freaking sorry, flew, he blew a fucking gasket on the touchline uh, and was talking with the official for a while. But like, then he just goes back and sits down, and the sub never happens. And I think our question, besides the fact that this is very funny, is like, can you do? Can the, yeah, what, can the player do that? What is and I have not researched this and refuse to research this. But why can't? Is it possible for a player to refuse to be substituted? I mean, I think there's got to be some moment in the rules that say like once the coach has announced, like officially told the referee of the substitution, then the player has to come off. But if so, like there's like some unofficial communication beforehand, the player and the player's like, no, I don't want to, and the coach then doesn't substitute him off. So, so I just did a quick Google search, and here's the first hit. It's from Substitute Association Football Wikipedia account, <laughs> and it says that under the laws of the game, and I just, I oh, I love that they call them the laws. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's amazing. The referee has no specific power to force a player to be substituted, even if the team manager or captain has no ordered shit. the player to be substituted. Rules. The rules say, quote, if a player who is to be replaced refuses to leave, play continues. 
That's amazing. That's really so apparently, cool. Yeah, apparently a player could just refuse to lose. This is actually amazing. How many players now are going to, like, if it's like, say it's the Champions League final and they want to sub you out, you're just like, nah. Well, right. And, like, obviously Keppa has had some major repercussions and he has not started, I think, since then. I, I don't know. But, you know, he's not been, he's immediately fell out with his coach. So that's a very good way to fall out with your coach. But, like, yeah, I mean, I would never play him again if I was the coach, right? Yeah, like you got to get someone who I would literally, I don't care how much you cost. I don't care how, you know, how, how good you are. You would just, you just wouldn't play anymore. Because you, if you're the coach, you if you let that go, you've lost the team. But well, you have no authority anymore. To the extent that Sarri even has this team at all right now. I don't really understand. That's one of the interesting threads of this season. When I came into it, I was so sure that this particular iteration of Chelsea were going to be so good because I felt like, Sorry, is such a high level coach, but they've just bafflingly bad. They just Baffling. they just drew wolves this morning, and they only drew them on a ninety fourth minute equalizer by Hazard, who just does ridiculous Hazard things occasionally. Yeah, and he might well be gone in the summer. So yeah, um, it's really like, especially if, yeah Madrid decides to just tear it all down. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's actually insane that a player can just refuse to go. And I agree with you that usually it's going to cause you to to you know, cause them to just bench you. But a, I, I was thinking of a situation where like it's a cup final, yeah. And you just care about that one game. You know, you can just force your way. Like, okay, so what what happens if I um, if I don't come out? They'll be forced to sell me. Whatever. Fine. I'll go play somewhere else. Right. That's true. Yeah, I, I think that the total number of scenarios where this would happen and where it might actually happen in real life. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe we watch this happen in real life. But the t- the total numbers of, of, of these of situations where this might happen is very limited. But then again, we saw it in exactly that scenario you were talking about, right? It's the cup final. Kepa is like, I know I don't want to be substituted out for the penalties. I think I, I want to I take them. And he was not substituted out and then he, and then he lost and then he, he lost, lost the cup penalties yeah they lost and that's that's the crucial like me if you win right if you win but you 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 make a heroic save to win the, perhaps, the cup right perhaps you come out at the at the press conference and you're like i was right you know i knew i could do it but when you lose <laughs> yeah I, you, you don't even have that half leg to stand on anymore that's right uh Let's jump on. Let's let's jump into this this next topic. So one of the, this is obviously a very particular topic of of note to me because I've been dealing with it for a long time. But in this particular case, it's also a Real Madrid topic. It's um the treatment of or the sort of different league treatment of foreigners in different places, and in particular with respect to Gareth Bale, who is. Um, completed a disappointing season with Real Madrid so far. Um, uh, but I think that the the thing that we actually want to discuss is not like how Bale's done this season or, or or whatever, but really the way that the media right this is my understanding the way the media has kind of uh, turned him into kind of a boogeyman. Um, yeah. And when so and every country I would imagine has different. I know every country has different relationships with this, but with their foreign players. You know, there are media outlets and local outlets are very, sometimes very clearly, sometimes less clearly, but almost always there's going to be a bias towards representing the young local players well and making the foreign 
big name or even not so big name players seem worse. Um, and uh, that, I mean, with with Sp- with Bale in Spain, it's been a constant hate relationship where um, the Spanish media has spent the his entire career in Spain essentially attacking him, and uh, it's fascinating to me still that he has decided to remain in Spain despite this and yeah, that, put together that, that what blows is blows me away. Can can I can only you know. I have to say, is an unbelievably successful career. You know, he's the, he's got all the. I mean, like, what do they want? He's got all those rings. It's kind of hard to argue with. Ball, ball don't lie, as they say. <laughs> uh, but it reminds me a lot of a, a situation in England when, and I, I wrote an article like when I was in college about this, about how that everyone in England attacked Cristiano Ronaldo. And this is when he was playing for United, so I didn't even have any personal relationship to it. But everyone in England attacked Cristiano Ronaldo as some sort of horrible diver, and, you know, he's this sh- little shit, and blah, blah, blah. But the people, that, you know, and, they, and then there were all these pieces around that time, like an epidemic of diving is coming into the, the Premier League. And I remember very vividly that the only people that they cited as emblematic of this epidemic of diving were foreigners. It was like Ronaldo and not just foreigners, it was foreigners with like dark skin. <laughs> like Yeah. Ronaldo. Yeah, and well and, and the stereotype and for diving, right? The stereotype for diving is is Iberian players and South American players. Right? Like right. that's the, the the stereotypes. Um for for that. But I think that I mean, I think that it's kind of a multifaceted question, and that's why I, I wanted to talk about it because, you know, for me, there's like two sides to this coin, right? One is um, what you were just talking about, which is with respect to both the media and also fans. I kind of put them in a, in a similar category, yeah. Which is, you know, what should fans expect from you know foreign players who come to play in the league, and how should they treat them? And I think that there's some very obvious baselines of they shouldn't be racist. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's a pretty good place to start. Unfortunately, um, it's a place that we have not even gotten to yet. But yes, it's yeah. a good place to start. Um, but then there's the other question of like, you know, from a player's perspective, what obligations to the fans and the country and the league does the player have to try to become if, if he's never going to, you know, Gareth Bale is never going to become a Spaniard. Um, but what is his obligation to try to fit in more? And I think this comes up all the time yeah. in discussions of Gareth Bales. He hasn't tried to learn Spanish and he'll like claim that, oh, his, you know, his agent says his Spanish is quite good, but nobody really believes he speaks Spanish at all. Um, and, you know, Marce, that was the base of the Marcelo comment about him not speaking Spanish. And, you know, uh, he, he, he to, to what extent do, does does a player have an obligation to, um, you know, to to try to become a cultural fit for the league and the country that he's gone to play into? And I don't I don't think that it's an easy question from either side, because obviously uh, if the player doesn't uh you know doesn't learn the language doesn't seem like a cultural fit i think it's fairly obvious that fans are going to have a less favorable view of that player um how what is yeah. the limit of the fairness of that of that uh opinion though like how far how far does that uh, go yeah just become a i mean fair, unfair player honestly i i have a very probably skewed vision of this being a madrid fan and feeling like the the spanish 
kind of the the dailies that are the mouthpiece of of I think a very specific vision of Real Madrid fandom. I have a very negative and, and really poisonous view of this, but I think the players have one main obligation, and that's to be professionals and treat this like the thing that they do, like their job, like it is. They're very highly paid professionals, and what they should be doing is doing that and making understanding that they're they're being paid and that they have people who count on them and they have an obligation to the fans because that is part of their job. But it's also like, you know, no one is like one of the things that Bale gets accused of quote unquote. And this is what I, I just hate this so much that like, he got accused. And this is not even a thing that his teammates like Courtois gave a dumb, uh, gave an interview to one of these same dailies, right? Where jokingly he said that Bale and Kroos um, well, they're not Spanish. Like he was talking about how he has like a Spanish wife and his kid has yeah. lived in Madrid. And he's like, well, they're not Spanish. Oh, I'm I've become Spanish. And he was literally it was just talking about himself, and it was just kind of a silly interview that he was doing where he was like, well, like see, I'm Spanish, and like I the other night I went out with all my Spanish the Spanish teammates, and you know Bale and Kroos were great, but they they had to get home for dinner, and you know because we had training at nine thirty in the morning, they wanted to go to sleep, and. and and then the Spanish papers took that quote and it was like, Bale doesn't like his teammates and like refuses to become, you know, active in club matters and like he's an outcast and all this shit. And it's like, dude, it was like he was literally, literally giving a story about how he went out to drinks and partying with his teammates at like midnight on a Tuesday. And Bale is the bad guy who wants to go home and have a full night's sleep because he's a goddamn professional who has to be at work the next morning. What the hell are we talking about? Like, it's... It's amazing how this shit gets twisted. And if this, if that story were about anyone where, if it were Bale, who was like, yeah, I went out with my friends in the club and it was really cool and we were out really late, but, you know, Asensio wanted to go home and get a full night's sleep. The Spanish media would be talking about how Bale was irresponsible and how Asensio was like a real professional or whatever. And it's like this, it's, it's so clear that how, that these, that, that these people have an agenda out and what you need to do as a fan i think is just you you expect the basics um you don't expect them to be a saint you know but you expect them to comport themselves with a certain level of professionality in their dealings with the club and that's it that's the end of the line like if they i mean yeah i, yeah, I, think, I think i don't think that, that but i think that's a lot of from from someone who has a very cynical and, and long-term feud with people who have poisoned me from ever believing that you can ex ask or expect people to, um, uh, to like you, when you sign for a club, you, you take on a new idea. Like these Madrid dailies have poisoned the idea of these players, like feeling the shirt because of how much they use that as a, as an attack on foreign players. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, well, I think that your position on like what the obligation of players are, it, like, I think it makes sense. I, I, I think the problem is that, and this kind of goes back to our first discussion about like the place of sports in people's lives. Like, I think that the problem is it doesn't match people's lived experience of what sports is to yeah. them. No, right? that's totally it's, right. It's not just a thing that they go watch for a couple hours and it'd be great if Gareth Bale scores. It's like this cultural icon of what it means to be, you know, 
it, a you know in Madrid to be you know be a resident or, you know a, a person you know in that city it's, you know part of it is you know, is the football club and the players of the club and and I think that that's where yeah. it ends up taking on this like this heightened cultural sense and then once it does that uh, the that's when you get to this dark place where. Were you know whether it's English people enforcing cultural stereotypes against brown skin players from South America who come to play, or it's Spanish, right. uh, Spanish uh, media enforcing this cultural divide between you know kind of Southern Europe and Western Europe about like, well, we're much more chill and we'll go hang out and have dinner, but he he's stodgy and goes to bed you know early or whatever. Right, you get to this dark yeah. Kind of, uh, cultural cultural measuring sticky where it becomes you know it's like this proxy for for cultural nationalism totally ugly um and and unfortunate uh so yeah that, i don't really have much more to say about that other than people have been very mean to gareth bale and i i just it is beyond insane to me that he hasn't left uh left but, madrid what and what really strikes me on just finishing that thought is that Maybe he hasn't left Madrid because he actually loves Spain, like he said many, many times, and he was always wanted to play for Real Madrid. And the only reason he hasn't left is because of his own feeling of connection to the club and the country, despite what these absolute charlatan fucking proto-fascists are saying in the media about him not, like, being a proper Spaniard because he doesn't want to go out drinking until four in the morning every night. Like, these... You know, I, I, I actually, my understanding of it and everything that anyone has ever, that I know has talked, told me about him, um, I have not personally gotten the chance to meet him or talk to him, but the people that I know at the club and the people who I know who have, everyone to a, to a T says that he's just a quiet, per- professional kid who has a, is very happy with his wife and life in Spain and like... The idea that that would be something that you can hold against him is such a like a, such an upsetting thing to me. Like, uh, and it just it strikes me that they it, again just they wouldn't be doing this if his if his name wasn't Gareth. If it was like, you know, Paco or whatever, they would have right. no problem with it probably. Um, yeah. So and then that's this is and, and we've dealt with this a little bit on on the other show that I do, Managing Madrid podcast. But like, we this is also typical of any time there are just going to be people who have an agenda and this particular anti kind of foreign agenda that these Spanish media people have manifests itself whenever there's a young Spanish player who is behind the in the pecking order to one mm-hmm. of these foreign players and I've seen yeah. it before and one of the most classic examples of this is in 2002-2003 I was living in Spain and that was the first season that Real Madrid had Ronaldo, like OG, like, you know, doing all those step over, like, not like, you know, a fucking like Brazilian R9 Ronaldo. Um, and he was first season at the club. The media ran constant articles about how he was fat. Really weird. Um, there's a real, that's a real weird one. I wasn't even like trying to bring that up, but that, that was a part of it. But also they constantly criticized him and made calls constantly to have him benched in favor of a young Spanish player called um, Javier Garcia Portillo, who um, had this amazing record where he would come in, in the last 10 minutes of the game and score. 
and, and then it turned out that that was just a fluke because, of course, it was a fluke. And <laughs> Ronaldo had, is brilliant and had an amazing season, but it was constant. It was constant. And it was all of these articles about, well, why is Madrid starting Ronaldo when they could be starting this other guy who, let's, let's face it, is Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see that you're that ver- you see the English version of that in the EPL in 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 other ways, too, like in the terms of uh, they'll talk about the the English premium, um, which is the, you know, the, the premium on the transfer fee that you'll pay for a decent young English player over a decent young any any other player. And, and it sometimes that'll be justified in terms of, you know, you might be getting a homegrown player. So there's some rules, you know, with respect to that. But but I think really it it's that there's a perception that there's a marketing advantage to having a good English player. And I think that it's real. I think a big part of Tottenham's ascendancy the last few years has been that the core of – a big part of the core of the Tottenham team is an English core, right? Dele and Ellie and and Harry Kane are are English players and at skill positions where England doesn't – often produce good players yeah. um and, and there's others other young english players in the in the team and i think so i think that it's a similar phenomenon to what you're talking about this kind of preference for for local uh local players and i, I think there's there's some rationality behind it. it of course a player who's from the country is going to play better in the media um but then it can go this step too far where it becomes this this kind of hostility towards the foreign <laughs> players yeah um Let's jump on. So um, another thing we wanted to talk about, the, U, um, the U.S. women's national team has uh, stepped up in their um, uh, ongoing fight to improve their contracts and have filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against um, USSF. Um, Evan, do you want to just quickly talk us through what, what yeah. that means? Yeah. So, OK, so they the the there's been a few different lawsuits and, and, and legal actions filed in the kind of long saga of the women's national team fighting for better treatment, especially in relation to the men's national team, which I think most people are probably fairly familiar with a lot of the issues that we're talking about. It's, you know, it's pay, but it's also more than just pay. It's accommodations, it's travel, it's medical facilities, it's uh, working conditions in the sense of the types of pitches that they're expected to play on. You know, it's it's a million different things that the women's national team has, has been fighting for, particularly over the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years or so. Um, they had filed previously a complaint with the uh, with the federal government, an administrative complaint about gender discrimination, which is kind of a first step that you have to take in the U.S. legal system for this type of lawsuit. And they just recently got permission to file an actual lawsuit. So they have now sued in federal court uh, USSF, alleging that USSF is is breaking the law um, with respect to payment of. Uh, of the women's national team compared to the men's national team and and other working conditions. And, and basically the law says you can't, you know, the law is explicit. You're not allowed to discriminate uh, in employment decisions, including pay and accommodations on the basis of sex or gender. Like that's the rule. And so they're alleging that USSF has essentially admitted that they are paying uh, the women's national team less, which is true. The USSF has never denied it. Um, and that they and they cite all the other differences in accommodations um, as as examples of of unfair treatment, and they allege that this violates the law. Um, and and so that's kind of where it stands with the complaint. Um, you know, we were talking before the show, like what is you know what does this really mean 
um, and how likely are they to win? Like, I mean, I'm not an expert on employment law. The, the, I think the big problem they're going to run into is that um, the law, while it says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex and employment decisions, it do, that doesn't mean that every time you treat male and win, women differently, you violate the law. If there's a non you know, non-discriminatory purpose. If there's some other reason other than the fact that they're women that you're paying them less, um, you can probably get away with it. And USSF has always held the line that they, that the different in treatment between the men's team and the women's team is, is based on the economics of the sport. And that frankly, you know, that just bluntly that the men team brings in more revenue. And so the men's team gets paid more. Um, and that for the same reason, they spend more on accommodations and everything else. Women's team comes back and says, well, we've been more profitable in the past, which is true. USF will come back and say, well, if we paid you more, you wouldn't be, be more, more profitable anymore. And so that's kind of the fundamental like argument. Legal um, so legally, I don't, yeah, yeah the, of the legal argument. But I think that this is more than just. Uh, a legal play. I don't know if they expect to win this lawsuit. I think that, you know, a lot of times these lawsuits are filed in the course yeah. of labor negotiations, uh, kind of to, to stake out a position. I was going to say this, pressure on the other this strikes me as a classic. Um, and we can, we will, we can just discuss the kind of what, you know, moral or whatever, um, uh, justifications for this, which I think are very much different from what the legal, uh, justifications are. But I think the play it, as just, kind of neutral and as, as you know, from a standpoint of if I were advising the women, this is the kind of move I would have taken as well because, as we've seen in the past, just recently, the threat of a lawsuit that, especially a lawsuit that has a, a lot of moral force behind it, even if the, the law in this area is not particularly developed in favor of you, like in this case, gender discrimination law is very much not particularly well developed in, in, in this area. Um, the very threat of it is enough to make the other side move a little bit. And the threat of discovery, the threat of on protracted ongoing litigation companies and organizations don't want to have this looming threat and they want to deal with this stuff more quickly. So I think it's a, I think you're right that it's a negoti negotiating ploy. We saw it obviously in, I mean, in the, the, the crew stuff, I think what it shocked a lot of people, including myself, that it was so successful. Um, and I think the lawsuits had a huge, were, were a huge part of that. And obviously we didn't test any of the legal theories. We don't know what's, if those would have held up precisely because the lawsuits in a lot, in large part convinced MLS to settle and, and negotiate with people in, in the Columbus area and save the crew or keep the crew in Columbus, which is great. And this, I yeah. think, is very much pro probably with the direction they're going with this lawsuit as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I I was reading somewhere that because of the current CBA that they're under, they they actually they don't have an a uh, the opportunity to strike to actually have a strike until like 2021, and so you know with that off the table, they're left looking for other avenues of leverage in order right. to uh to to get concessions, and they're also left with you know, uh, seeking other opportunities to keep the plight of the women's team in in the media, right, in the headlines. And I think that this lawsuit brings it back to the fore for a bit, and it'll continue to give lots of opportunities for them to highlight, you know, through the course of litigation, for them to highlight 
what their case is in a substantive sense, not just in a legal sense, but right, exactly. like, here's what our complaints are and just keep those in front of the public eye. And, and especially um, into heading into the summer where the World Cup is happening and they're you yeah. know going to be very much on everyone's minds, I think it's exactly the right time to do this. So Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's very smart because you know it, it creates two big problems for – USSF, right? One is what we were just talking about, which is like a PR problem of, you know, they want the women's national team to go to, to, for the, the, the story to be the success of the team, right? that not the story to be, look at this great team that is being treated unfairly by, you know, right. rich money bags, us soccer. Um, and by doing this right before the world cup and when we're about to spin up for world cup coverage, it's going to make sure that every interview is going to include a question, uh, about the yeah, treatment exactly. of the women's national team. And then the second is what you were just talking about. The second benefit of this is the is the the more legal aspect, right? Which is the threat of discovery. And I I think that you know whenever you have these corrupt as shit organizations who are constantly in trouble anyway, um, you know the last thing in the world that they want is somebody with the, the vast power of discovery in the U.S. legal system, uh, you know, at their disposal to just go sifting through the books and sifting through their email, uh, finding whatever it is that they uh, they can find in there about misconduct, and you know they they don't want to be exposed that way. And I think this terrified MLS and U.S. Soccer with the crew, and I think it's going to terrify U.S. Soccer here that if they get to discovery. You know, for people who don't know, discovery is the ability of of parties in a litigation to to learn and demand information and documents from the other side. And you can learn, you know, anything that that might even be arguably relevant to your claim. You can pretty much ask for it. And in a you know in a gender discrimination type lawsuit, that's going to include all of the financials, right? Of U.S. soccer. It's just it is a huge threat. And it's a very much the kind of and, – and it's one of the only tools at their disposal. And so they have to leverage both the threat of this massive opening up and annoyance, this, this corporate annoyance with also the very real possibility that uh, – and with their ability to leverage their own media, <laughs> right, access and, and ability to shape the public consciousness around this issue. Those are the only two tools they have legally in the er, – Mm-hmm. practically in this in the book right now to improve their conditions and so you know i i think it's totally fair i mean and also substantively there there may you know just putting aside whether you know, what the law is i mean it does seem to me like there is there's a huge cause for concern about this obviously there's more in the men's game more money in the men's game but i don't think that that is any is particularly meaningful to me when it comes to how you distribute the resources um, especially when, as we said, the U.S. women's team is both more profitable and much better <laughs> um, you, than the men's team. Yeah, you team. know, I, I probably take a slightly different view on this in that, I, you know, for me, the fact that the men's team makes more money doesn't shock my conscience in the same way because it because I, I, do, I do see the economic justification that, you know, as a general rule, you're going to be paid commiserate to, you know, what the you know, what the market is for for what you're bringing to the table and the market for what the men's team is bringing to the table is substantially larger. Um, and, and so that, like, that doesn't shock my con and, and there's also this other little detail that changes things a little bit in that, in that men only get game bonuses and roster bonuses, like when they actually get selected for the team where all of these, uh, women's national team players are kind of on a constant payroll with contracts. It's, it's a little bit different, 
but what I think I think where the women's strongest case is, and I think that they, by the way, do have a case for making more money than they make. Mm. But if to the extent that the case is um, making exactly the same, exactly the same as the men's game, I think you're gonna have it's gonna be a hard sell that you know there should just be an equal distribution of of resources. But and so they have an argument they should make more money based on the success. I think that's a strong argument. I think, but what their strongest argument is, and where I think they have made some gains, and I think they're going to keep making gains, is in the kind of non-pay treatment that the women's team gets compared to Mm. uh, compared to the men's team. You know the the accommodations they. Oh yeah, that is uh, that's such a travel. The stadiums they're expected to play in. Yeah, that's uh, such like a that's, that's such a no brainer. Yeah, and it's that you know even if we're not gonna get everyone maybe you know to agree on 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 for example I I mean like yeah I obviously think that um I have no problem especially at the national team level I don't I don't think because people see it as such an honor to play for their country and I think there's a level of this where we're both pretending it is a business while kind of saying it's not one of the ways that we can make it seem less like a overt, you know, and, and truly corrupt business is by um, essentially paying every, everyone exactly the same to play, whether they're Alex Morgan or, you know, Josh Sargent or, or Christian Pulisic or any of these people, or down to the lowest member, everyone who gets gets the same kind of bonus is the same pay structure. And because really the point is more about um, showing, kind of doing a, political message with it like we're all equal anyways but I, I that's I don't have a problem with that I but I do think that one of the you're right that the area that really we can get perhaps a larger consensus on than what I think I'd admit is maybe my more out there feelings um, is that we shouldn't be forcing these women to play on fucking artificial turf or yeah. doing shit like putting them up in motel sixes or whatever, like or, or making them fly coach to you know coach <laughs> international to a game. They only got their first chartered flight to a match like last year. That's crazy. Where that I mean, you know, don't believe for a second that the men's team doesn't charter a flight for everywhere that they go. Yeah, of course um, they do. And, you know, that I think that that's the type of thing where, you know, that's just investment in the team by U.S. soccer. And that's the thing where I think the women have the strongest argument of, you know, if you want us to perform the best, you need to treat us the same that you treat the men's team. If you want to, you know, if you want to prove that you actually, you know, because U.S. soccer makes a lot of hay that they are, you know, the leader in investment in the women's team, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, a ton of hay about it. If you actually think you know, want to, uh, if you actually want to show that that's true, um, you need to give the women's team the, all the resources that they need in order to compete at the highest level. Uh, and not, and, and not just, you yeah, know, and, like you yeah. said, put them up at hotel sixes after a 12 hour coach flight train, you know, transatlantic <laughs> coach flight to the world cup. It is, it is just really gross. And I'm glad that the world cup, um, I mean, I'm glad that a, the last women's world cup um, brought to the fore the issue of playing on turf because it is disgusting that we force people to play on turf. I just, just really bad. Like they would, these pictures would emerge of these people's legs that would be just covered in turf burn, blood, and bruise, and it's just like yeah, it's gross. It's terrible. This is awful. And we it's, would never. Yeah, Zlatan so, refused to play on like any U.S. Uh, U.S. stadium that was that was turf, didn't he? Yeah, he, and he is right to do that. Yeah, <laughs> this is an appropriate response to being told to do that. Um, you know, and we, 
and I don't mean to uh, applaud him for doing that and like make it as if that was an option for the women. Like that was literally not an option. The only way, like if they had done a strike and forfeited because of the conditions, like that would have been, that's the catastrophic nightmare scenario. Right. But like, it is absolutely unacceptable. We, we treat the women like that. And, you know, we can maybe disagree on some of the bigger things, but these little, these, these kind of details, you know, these, they, they actually are really important and central to well, they're, a, they're the feeling in, of equality also. Well, like, yeah, no, yeah, they're in, it's indignities, right? There are the, all these little indignities that I think drive the women's players to protest in a way that just the money wouldn't, right? Because it was just the money. I think that more, you know, the people, no one's ever going to be happy that they're paid less money, right? But if it's just the money, you listen to U.S. soccer's arguments, and you're like, well, fuck, okay, whatever. I guess they're, you know, yeah, they pay less money for, for the Women's World Cup. But, but the other indignities just feel like, you yeah. know, they just care about them. Um, all right, last topic. We're going to touch on it briefly because it's been hilarious, and uh, I, we have to talk about it because it's so on brand. But um, apparently it's been um, maybe refuted, not, not clear. The story is um, friend of the show, patron of the show, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I know you're listening. What's going on, man? Um, as considering buying Manchester United from the Hell yeah. uh, another friend of the show, the Glazer family. Um, sell them, sell them the club, Glazers. This I know you're is, listening. Mohammed want, King, what's up? Oh, so good. My, our, our king. <laughs> he might be Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, but he's king in our hearts. <laughs> I so please want... don't send a hit squad to decapitate us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know for, why you should. We're we doing are, jokes. We are loyal, this is a joke. Subjects. Yeah, we are. We're subjects. <laughs> loyal subjects of his ephemeral kingdom across the world. <laughs> this uh, is, what's really cool about this story is that MBS is manifestly not a soccer uh, a soccer fan. He like doesn't like this sport. And so it's fascinating to think of him because this is one of the most obvious examples of soft, like people using soft power to try to expand their reach. Oh yeah. Um, and all these rumors surfaced like right in the middle of the, the one of the worst, you know, cycles of news for Saudi Arabia in, in 10 years, it's, right? Yeah, since 9-11. <laughs> yeah. 9-11 or, or even since, you know, the, the OPEC oil crisis. But, uh, you know, but here's why I lo- love love so much about this story right so there's the aspect you just talked about right which is that this is clearly 100 percent just a response to the fact that saudi arabia has been on the verge of war with Qatar for like two years and Qatar obviously has very has invested in of, soccer they're, they're they've, they've made some investments um here and there you know little clubs <laughs> And and so it's clearly this response to that, and and it, 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 which is very funny. It's sad, right? It's both sad, but also funny because of how transparent it is. Yeah, uh, that these golf countries are just overtly using sports as a as a political a, arena. It is just mask off for these guys. I love it. I I mean, Muhammad King, you it's should just, absolutely absolutely. It's just tra- it. it's it's like trading cards for them. Right. It's like it's like trying to find the best trading card. And they're like, oh, well, you made P- you got PSG. Well, fuck you. We're going to get united. Yeah, and really, I hope they do. I because, hope they do, too, because then we have P- uh, Manchester City versus Manchester United being a Saudi versus UAE um, uh, fight. And it's just. Oh, yeah. That is makes it even cooler. 
Um, even though those two are allied against Cutter, um, Dude, imagine PSG imagine, and Barca. Because we let's be very very clear about where we live, right? We do not live in the good place. No, uh, this no, is no, actually no. a bad place. And in this the bad place, this is the bad place. Yeah, it, it, this is the bad place. And in the bad place, uh, soccer rivalries in a third country where two different countries own the biggest teams will spark a war. And that is what's going to start World War III, right? It's going to be a really nasty Manchester derby after Saudi Arabia <laughs> has purchased Manchester United. And it's going to spoke, spike, uh, you know, spark a global crisis in the Middle East that's going to draw in the United States and Russia. Everyone's going to take sides. It's going to be the great football war. It's, it's what we're going to get. That'd be, that's it's what we deserve. I mean, it is – what we deserve is to go down and have this just flaming pile of shit out of our misery. But is it? It's maybe too funny. I think we don't deserve something that funny. Like that's you, too funny a way to go out. It was so stupid too. Yeah, so, but I agree, so, we deserve so something dumb. stupid and sad. It's I don't know like if we deserve something PSG dumb and fun. Poaches, uh, uh, Lionel Messi, age 38, from Manchester United, buying out his two billion pound <laughs> claws. <laughs> and then Saudi Arabia, like, fucking uh, 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 nukes cutter. <laughs> uh, you know what, like... I'm, what I want to see is I want to see both United and and uh, City to be relocated to the Middle East. <laughs> they'll still they'll still remain in the Premier League ostensibly, but they're just going to build a stadium in the Middle East, and they're just going to charter a private flight for yeah, each of the players back build... to back England occasionally. But they also won't do that. They'll just pay the FA enough that they don't have to play play uh, play away games anymore. <laughs> Oh God! But the war the war is going to start when our Peaky Blinders guy becomes a United fan because he can't go to Birmingham games anymore, and he's going to jump out of the stands, and go you know, clock Christian Pulisic in the head, and uh, and that's that's that that's, that's the war. it. That's the war, and it's it's going to be great. It's going to be great, guys. I'm excited. <laughs> Everything is good. It's this is be the great. best case scenario. Uh, all right, Evan. It's good talking to you, buddy. We'll um, we'll catch up more. We're back, obviously, trying to do this as much as possible, but at least once a month. So, uh, send us your bad takes, your bad news. It's all good. I mean, this is the bad place. This is the bad place. It's been fun, man. Bye. Wait a minute. You know what? Holy smokes! This is the bad place. 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 The pets get angry. This is the bad place. Beef, 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 beef. Oh, oh, this is the bad place. Hit me. When the four corners of this cocoon collide, you'll slip through the cracks, hoping that you.
Snipe your ass before 35. Yeah. Looking down, it's quite a drop. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.